0: Trigger warning. Sensitive mental health topics, including drug abuse, self-harm, suicide, and hospitalization. She wanted so much to be a part of his world. She thought Bobby would be her passport to becoming a great lady. I saw the stuff in Marilyn's diary, things about Jimmy Hoffa and Fidel Castro. It didn't mean anything to me because I was just a stupid young girl and couldn't have cared less if they all killed each other. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany, and I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know, sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, And their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun. And we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are... The Kennedy Siblings. In the summer of 1962, Jack Kennedy read a book called The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman. It was an analysis of all the things that led up to World War I, and there was a conversation in the book between two German leaders. How did it all happen? The other replied, if only one knew. Kennedy told White House employees, If this planet is ever ravaged by nuclear war and the survivors of that devastation can endure the fire, poison, chaos, and catastrophe, I do not want one of those survivors to ask another, how did it all happen? And to receive the incredible reply, if only one knew. And so, to prevent this travesty, JFK came up with a plan. In July of 1962, Kennedy installed tape recorders in several areas of the White House, the cabinet room, Oval Office, and the library of the executive mansion. A Secret Service agent installed these massive tape recorders in the basement room and then ran wires to the microphones hidden in each of the areas Jack had requested. These tapes continually ran throughout the day and recorded massive reels of audio footage. There was a microphone hidden under the president's desk in the Oval Office and one under the coffee table. There was a microphone behind the curtains in the cabinet room, and they also installed hidden buttons so that the president could turn the microphones on and off as he saw fit. At first, only Evelyn Lincoln, remember she is JFK's secretary, and two Secret Service agents knew about the tapes, other than JFK, of course. But by 1963, so about six months later, Bobby and his secretary, Angie Novello, also knew. In total, they gathered 260 hours of recordings, 248 of those hours were meetings, and 12 hours were telephone calls. This is how we have your horses. It's known that Kennedy was pretty honest in what he recorded. He didn't only record flattering conversations or things that would make him look good. He kept almost everything. Almost. Three tapes have blank spots or like little clicks where you can tell that it's been edited. Some of the footage missing may have included conversations about how to assassinate Castro and maybe also a few sections about Judith Campbell Exner and Marilyn Monroe. Pat may be the consistently missing link in all accounts of Marilyn's relationship with the Kennedy family. J. Randy Taraparelli In some ways, the friendship between Marilyn and Pat made sense. Pat was drawn to the glamour and glitz that was all Marilyn's, whereas Marilyn had always longed for the security and financial stability enjoyed by Pat. In other ways, the friendship seemed surprising. For instance, Pat was puritanical. While Pat was rather plain and ordinary in appearance, Marilyn was, well, Marilyn. While it was said that Pat made the sign of the cross whenever she had to have sex with Peter, Marilyn was, well, Marilyn. One brunette, mother of four, strong, emotions stuffed down and sure. One blonde, Unable to have a child, though she desperately wanted to be a mother. Soft, emotions overflowing, and always looking for acceptance. She's probably the strongest, most confident woman I have ever met. I wish I had her balls. Those Kennedy balls. (laughs) If that girl had been born with balls, she'd have been a hell of a politician. They were opposite of each other, and it created a fast friendship. Marilyn had grown up with such lack, lack of family, lack of love, lack of resources. Pat grew up in excess, excess resource, plenty of love, excess family members. <laughs> Pat and Peter's oldest son, Christopher, remembers, quote, Marilyn had a quiet voice and she would smile at me and head out to walk on the sand with my mom. My mother told me Marilyn was like her little sister. It surprised her that Marilyn was so open with her. My mom didn't come from an environment where emotions and feelings were openly shared. Marilyn Monroe trusted my mother's love for her. Quote, I remember Pat calling once in the spring of 1960, and she said, I'd like for you to meet someone here. The next thing I knew, I was hearing this breathy voice on the other end of the phone. Marilyn. Pat says you are her dear friend she told me. Well, I am too. Maybe we'll meet one day. I said, fine, let's too. Finally, Pat came back on the line. So what do you think of that? <laughs> she was definitely impressed by Marilyn and wanted to impress others that she knew her. Which is so funny because she was always this way. Such a fangirl. Remember when Joe Sr. was dating Gloria Swanson and having an affair with Gloria Swanson. Oh my gosh, yes. And Pat took Gloria Swanson's kid to school (laughs) with her as show and tell. And nobody believed her. Gloria Swanson would not have a daughter and she would not be in Brookline. (laughs) In July of 1960, Pat invited Marilyn to watch John F. Kennedy accept the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Marilyn was filming The Misfits at the time and wasn't sure she could make it. Pat told her she would, quote, be missing something very historical. So Marilyn promised to be there. Always her big brother's biggest fan. Absolutely. Listen, it's a big deal. He's a big deal. We're a big deal. (laughs) Get with the program. She flew in for the convention that day and flew right back out that night. Wait, so you said this is July 1960. Correct. Correct. But I thought last episode that a bunch of Marilyn's friends said that they hung out all throughout the 50s. And this sounds like she's never met Jack. Marilyn and Jack met each other backstage on this night in 1960 at the Democratic nomination. But they had met each other once before, sometime in the 1950s at a dinner party. Allegedly, they hadn't talked and they didn't really know each other at that point, though, nor did they get to know each other on the Democratic nomination night in 1960. There was concern about it, though. History doesn't always tell the future. And everyone knew Marilyn. And everyone knew Jack. And that was cause for concern. Yes, Marilyn was in the crowd, along with many other stars. That night, I think a strong friendship began to develop between her and Jack Kennedy. She was free, but Jack Kennedy wasn't. Peter Summers, a Kennedy campaign aide. Not to be confused with Anthony Summers, which is the author of Goddess from last episode. Correct. They were spoken to sternly about it, and Marilyn got the talk from Pat. What happened was that someone from the Kennedy campaign told Peter Lawford that JFK had been flirting with Marilyn. They wanted to nip it in the bud before something happened. Would he talk to Marilyn about it? Peter thought it was unfair to approach Marilyn Monroe with a warning since nothing had even occurred. Still, he decided to ask Pat to at least mention it to her, that there was concern about it. So, from my understanding of it, Pat called Marilyn and said, Look, I know how ridiculous this is, but everyone is going nuts because they think that my brother was flirting with you the other night. Do you think that he was? Marilyn said. Well, of course he was. And I was flirting back but it meant nothing. It was just flirting. Pat said, Fine. I just wanted you to know that they were worried about it. Marilyn asked, About what? And Pat just said, Just that something might happen between you and my brother, that's all. It's very silly. Marilyn agreed. Oh, Pat, that is silly. It's just ridiculous. By the end of August 1960, Marilyn was complaining of voices again. The drugs she was taking were not resolving her symptoms and the quantities were getting out of control. Ralph Greenson, her last psychiatrist. We heard interviews from his wife, daughter, and son last episode. Yes. Well, Dr. Greenson eventually lost respect from his peers for the way that he treated his patient, Marilyn. He had too much control. His fingers were in everything. Business, personal, familial. Greenson was there. Her new attorney, Mickey Rudin, Greenson's brother-in-law. She even felt that she had to explain her romantic experiences to him. In March 1961, she wrote in a letter to him about a fling on a wing. She didn't name the person the fling was with, but said that they were unselfish in bed, but that she knew Dr. Greenson would not approve of the relationship. Some presume that she was talking about Frank Sinatra. Some think that she was referring to one of the Kennedy brothers. Dr. Greenson also became Frank's psychiatrist, and Mickey Rudin became his lawyer. A friend of Marilyn's remembered. Why in the world Sinatra would have Greenson as his shrink, fully knowing the condition of his other famous patient, Marilyn, was a mystery to everyone. It was all just a little creepy. There was too much Greenson everywhere you looked. Further, Dr. Greenson hired a full-time, live-in companion for Marilyn to monitor her. She was his ears and eyes when he wasn't with Marilyn. Eunice Murray was a 59-year-old woman who called herself a nurse, but had no medical training whatsoever. Diane Stevens remembered, quote, "'Marilyn couldn't have guests over without Greenson knowing. She, Eunice, the nurse that's not really a nurse,' was always peering around corners, taking mental notes, and then reporting back to the doctor. I met her once. I had to drop some paperwork at Marilyn's house, and when I did, this woman came to the door. Who are you? she demanded to know. Why haven't I seen you around here before? What business do you have here? Oh my god. I was horrified by her attitude. I thought to myself, she's a housekeeper. What right does she have to talk to anyone like this? So I said, who are you? Why haven't I seen you around here before? What business do you have here? She looked at me with an angry face and then slammed the door in my face. Sounds lovely to hang out with 24-7. A great vibe to have in the home. Not only did the lines of patient and friend become much too blurred, not only did he have way too much control over Marilyn's life, but... Dr. Greenson also had Marilyn on 300 milligrams of Numbutol. Nembutol is a barbiturate, a sedative. The max dose for any person was supposed to be 100 milligrams. So Marilyn was on three times the max. Arthur Miller, Marilyn's husband at the time, said this. Doctors had gone along with her demands for new and stronger sleeping pills, even though they knew perfectly well how dangerous this was. There were always new doctors willing to help her into oblivion. Rupert Allen, who saw Marilyn on set every day, said, quote, He was giving Marilyn three times the dosage she should have been given. I found it shocking, just shocking, that any doctor would prescribe that much Nimbutol for insomnia. It made her absolutely paranoid in her waking hours. She told me she always felt as if she was being followed. Everything was closing in on her. But, as with any situation, there is also responsibility to be had on the other side. Alan remembers Marilyn crushing second-all capsules in her mouth between film takes. I would say that by this time she was... I'm sorry to say it, a drug addict. That would not be overstating it. Dr. Greenson commented to a colleague, actually the colleague was Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, casual. Anna is also the founder of child psychoanalysis. Greenson wrote her, quote, Short of searching her person every day, it is impossible to know what she is taking and when. I'm not sure how to monitor someone like her. She's very crafty. Her makeup artist, Alan Snyder, said that around this time, he would have to start on her makeup while she was still flat on her back in bed, pajamas still on, hair undone. There was no other way. It would take her so long to get up in the morning, we had to start with the makeup before she was out of bed. She eventually had to pause filming on The Misfits. The press reporting that she was suffering from, quote, extreme exhaustion. She had a nervous breakdown, said her stand-in, Evelyn Moriarty. There was a lot of concern about her health and well-being. She was in bad shape. Some of us didn't think she would be able to find her way back from it. When is this? 1960. And how old is Marilyn at the time? 34 years old. Pat Brennan remembers Pat Kennedy visiting Marilyn in the hospital during this time. Pat wanted to visit Marilyn, but she didn't want to cause a spectacle by doing it. So she arranged with the hospital to sneak in after visiting hours and wore a silly black wig and glasses in order to not be recognized. (laughs) She said that when she showed up in Marilyn's room, she was sound asleep. She remembered Marilyn being white as a sheet. So much so, that for a moment, she actually thought she was dead. I had never seen a woman look like that who was not in a casket, she told me. She stood at the foot of Marilyn's bed and just stared at her, for ten minutes, wondering how in the world it had come to this for her. I knew I was coming in at the end of a long story, and was so sorry I had not been around to help her, she told me. She said that Marilyn stirred and finally awakened. Then she looked at me. Pat remembered, and said, somewhat angrily, Who the hell are you? She took off the disguise and Marilyn burst out laughing. (laughs) Suddenly, she was Marilyn Monroe again. A glow just came over her, Pat said. Her color returned. Her personality returned. Marilyn said, Well, this is the first time you've ever seen me in the hospital, Pat. How do I look? Pat said, Marilyn, I swear to God, you look like shit. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't know if Pat has ever said anything more Kennedy than I wish I would have been here sooner so that I could do more. She like mm-hmm. feels responsible to help Marilyn because Marilyn was the underprivileged person in this scenario and she wanted to be her friend sooner so that she could help more. Yeah. And, and Marilyn's so problems sad. have nothing to do with her. No, nothing at all to do with her. And she just wished she had more years with her too. Yeah. Her. That was in the fall of nineteen sixty. In February 1961, Marilyn was committed to the psychiatric hospital for her suicidal thoughts. This is the hospitalization that we talked about in the last episode. In June of 1961, Pat and Jean went to Vegas for opening night of Frank Sinatra's show. Pat and Jean spent the day with Marilyn getting facials and manicures and gossiping, of course. Is this Jean Kennedy? Yes. Okay. Pat Brennan remembers, quote, Pat told me she was most concerned about Marilyn. She said she was already pouring herself glasses of champagne by noon. Pat was a drinker too, but at least she waited until cocktail hour. In Vegas, though, Pat wasn't drinking at all because she was eight months pregnant. Quote, When you're not drinking, she told me, you see what everyone else is like when they're loaded, and it's not pretty. Pat pulled Marilyn aside that weekend and told her, Marilyn, as your friend, I think you should know that when you're drunk, it's not very becoming. Oh. (laughs) Listen, Ten, don't you think you ought to become a Catholic? (laughs) Marilyn was reportedly insulted at first, but then realized that Pat was probably right. It's the only way I can keep the voices in my head from getting too loud, she told her. And is this in the 50s or the 60s? This is February 1961. So this is after. Okay, I was wondering if this is the time is President This is not the time that they went to Vegas with Frank Sinatra and she named her kid after him during that time. No. That was like earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is after Jack has cut off Frank. No, not yet. Mm-mm, not That's yet. That's coming up. Correct. Okay. This is probably after the and Happy New Year, my ass. Right. But before the actual cutting off of Frank Sinatra, the actual falling out due to Bobby. <laughs> this is after Peter Lawford loses his jeans, but before the helipad. Correct. Okay. There we go. After the lighting of the clothes, before the helipad. It's kind of sad that we're literally, timeline of events is on Frank Sinatra losing it. Well, it's frequent and they're at momentous times. <laughs> yeah. Like he knew when to freak out. Yeah. It's not for nothing. Yep. The rest of the day, they had fun. Pat had Victoria, her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, with her in Vegas. Well, if that ain't Pat Kennedy. Quote, Her other two children were to arrive the next day. She was having them carted by stretch limousine from California to Nevada. The next day, while her siblings were riding in style being transported from California to Nevada, Victoria went gambling. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Obviously, this was illegal. But Victoria was a Kennedy. Pat hoisted Victoria up and sat her right on top of the blackjack table. (laughs) Quote, Okay, here's the deal, Pat said. If I lose, I'm leaving this kid right here. But if I win, I'll take her as my prize. She played her hand and lost. (laughs) Okay, that's it, she said. You get the kid. Marilyn watching, Pat stood up, turned, and walked away. But Pat, Pat, Marilyn exclaimed. Quote, she loved doing things like that, (laughs) Pat Brennan recalled, just to get a reaction from Marilyn. She liked to keep it light and easy when she was with Marilyn because she knew Marilyn had so much sadness in her life. Pat loved a reaction, particularly the shocked, mouth-hanging-open kind. She told her true life stories to achieve this. Quote, After Peter and I had Christopher, Peter was very unhappy because the baby cried all the time and the house smelled like shit. Oh, well... I guess that's what happens when you have a baby. Marilyn replied. So what did you do? Well, we decided it would be best if Christopher had his own apartment across the street. What? How old was he? Marilyn exclaimed as Pat told her this story in front of other friends who then reported these events. (laughs) Well, he was about two months old, actually. Pat thought out loud. So anyway, we rented an apartment for him and the nanny and he slept over there. It was just a lot easier on everyone. (laughs) Can you believe? This may top Jackie's parents leaving her for like a month and a half for vacation right after she was born. Yeah. Frank's opening night in Vegas, the night of the whole blackjack bet (laughs) afternoon, Eddie Fisher, Elizabeth Taylor's husband, was sitting at Marilyn's table. What can I say about Marilyn that night? We all knew that she was having a thing with Sinatra, so it was definitely hands-off. But she was so drunk that night, I can tell you that she was an embarrassment to him. It wasn't good. From a distance, it was, wow, she's a knockout. But up close, it was, oh, no, she's knocked out. She didn't look well, and she always acted so very strangely. She seemed a little crazy to me. At the party, I remember her whining. Oh, Frankie, come on. Let's make out for the photographers. I love you, Frankie. I want the world to know. I remember that she was standing behind him and had her hands around his waist, almost as if she was leaning on him for support. Instead of making out for the photographers, Frank pulled away and then told one of his bodyguards, Keep an eye on her. I don't like the way she's wobbling. Let me know if she faints or something. Marilyn still wanted a picture taken with Frank. She sidled over to him like a kitten and motioned my photographer with her index finger, indicating that he should take the shot while Sinatra wasn't looking. She was being very playful and coy. Just as my photographer was about to take the picture, Frank's bodyguard grabbed the camera. He gave it to Frank and whispered something in his ear. Then Frank walked over to where we were standing and hissed, Next time you try that, I'll crack your skull open with this camera. The both of you. Wait, the both of you, as in Marilyn and the photographer? <laughs> no. The, no, the. the photographer and the, the guy who's talking. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the <laughs> head photographer and the sub photographer. Oh my gosh. The both of you. Frank and his anger issues. Yep. The violence. Hollywood is truly a collection of unwell children. Characters. <laughs> yeah. Truly. Unresolved trauma. I remember that he talked out of the corner of his mouth like a gangster. The both of you. Oh yeah, we found out in the Frank Sinatra KFMs that The Godfather, there's a character in The Godfather that's Yes. based on Frank Sinatra. At that moment, Marilyn came over and with wild eyes said, Frankie, I'm going to throw up. He looked alarmed and said, When? And she said, Now. Right now. I mean it, Frankie. I'm going to throw up. He was obviously frustrated and embarrassed, cursed a bit under his breath, and said, Marilyn, not again. And this is at a dinner party at Frank's house? No, this is in Vegas. Okay, in Vegas. And Pat and Peter are there? Yes, opening night of Sinasha's show. And Marilyn is... Oh, this is opening night of Frank Sinatra's show. And Marilyn is (gasps) out of control. Not embarrassing him. doing well. Yeah. Probably shouldn't be there. She shouldn't be there. (laughs) In the fall of that year, a few months later, Marilyn and Pat made lunch plans to catch up at the Beachcomber. This was one of Pat's favorite places, to the point that she and Peter stopped by to have drinks on the way home from the hospital after having Christopher in 1955 to celebrate. Taking their two-year-old to the casino, taking their infant to the bar. Quote, They just plopped the infant right down on the bar in his little bassinet, ordered a couple of dirty martinis, and drank up. (laughs) So, on this lunch with Marilyn, at the same bar... Pat Brennan joined them as well. She remembers Pat Kennedy talking about how sad she was for her dad and how hard it was to watch him go through the aftermath of his stroke. We detailed Joe Senior's stroke in KFM 16 part 2. Do you love your father? Pat Brennan remembers Marilyn asking Pat Kennedy. Of course I do. Pat Kennedy replied. Dr. Greenson says I don't need a father. Marilyn said. They're optional. Not everyone has one. You are seeing too much of that guy. He's got you under a spell or something. Pat Kennedy threw out. But he's like a father to me, and I can trust him not to tell anyone. Tell anyone what? That I'm like my mother. Now you listen to me, Pat Kennedy said sternly. That man doesn't know what he's talking about. Your mother is a very sick woman. So am I, Marilyn returned. After some silence, Marilyn began to cry. Don't be angry with me, she said as she began to grab her stuff. Why would I be angry? Sit down. Where are you going? Pat Kennedy asked frantically. Just don't be angry with me. I couldn't take that, Marilyn said as she headed outside. This is all that damn doctor's fault, Pat grumbled. No, it isn't, Marilyn said softly. But it's not my fault either. Let's just talk about this, Pat Kennedy told her. No, I've upset you both. She gave both of them a kiss on the cheek and said, I swear this isn't my fault, before walking to her car and driving away. Both Pats were left stunned and confused. At the end of 1961, Dr. Greenson wrote about Marilyn's quote, severe depressive reaction to an unspecified event in her life. Quote, she had talked about retiring from the movie industry, killing herself, etc. Tara Borelli pointed out that if a doctor feels so familiar with such an episode in a patient's life that he uses etc. at the end of the sentence, suggesting that he's heard this all before, it's not good. No, I wouldn't think so. Joe DiMaggio spent Christmas of that year with Marilyn, though they had been divorced years ago after he heard her voice on the phone. While he was in L.A. visiting her, he and Marilyn had dinner with the Greensons. Quote, You know what it's like when you're in a car with someone and they run a red light and you know you're going to crash but you're not driving so there's nothing you can do about it? That's how I felt that night. I felt like Marilyn was about to crash But I was no longer in the driver's seat anymore, and there was nothing I could do about it. Marilyn was gushing all night that Dr. Greenson was her long-lost father and that his family was the only one she's ever known. It made Joe very, very uneasy. Patricia Kennedy loved her family, and she wanted to share them with everyone, especially with Marilyn, who didn't have one of her own. She even told Marilyn, you're a Kennedy now. And she didn't just tell anyone that. Not even Peter. Actually, when JFK won the Democratic nomination, all of the Kennedys were going to go out and join him on stage at the convention in Los Angeles. Peter started to walk out with the rest of his family and Pat stopped him. You're not actually a Kennedy, so I think it's not right. Jack heard her and so he asked. He's married to you. So that makes him a Kennedy, don't you think? Peter even took his citizenship test just so that he could vote for Jack. Like, can you, his wife. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. In front of and the whole we family, wonder we why. they're walking up to celebrate and she turns around and literally in front of the whole family is like, I think it's not right. You're not welcome. So are not think one It's not us. right. I married you, but you're still not one of us. I had four babies with you, but you're still not one of us. And we wonder why Jackie and Peter felt like they never belonged. Felt like they never fit in. They were should have been (gasps) told they don't fit in. No, there's no way Bobby was telling Ethel that. No. That's half the problem is the spouses. You know? Yeah. Bobby was like, you're a Kennedy, Ethel. And Pat was like, you're not a Kennedy, so I think it's not right. (laughs) You're right. We did not talk about that in the in-laws episode. Yeah. In January of 1962, Pat raved to her friend. You've just got to meet him. You'll never know anyone quite like my brother. Yes, one of her brothers was the president of the United States and was maybe the most charismatic and powerful human on the planet. But Pat wasn't talking about Jack. She was talking about Bobby. Marilyn loved being around the Kennedys. It was all the family she'd always wanted. A hundred kids and a dozen dogs running around, the adults throwing a football on the beach, and Judy Garland off in the background, drunk and dancing in the sand. Occasionally, Pat would have classy dinner parties to cleanse the place, usually when Bobby and Ethel were in town. She had one such party, on February 1st, 1962. Bobby and Ethel were staying at Pat's while in Los Angeles on a 14-country goodwill tour. This dinner is the answer to so many questions surrounding Bobby and Marilyn. Leading up to this dinner, Marilyn spent at least two weeks making her rounds calling everyone she knew, telling them all about her date with Bobby Kennedy. The problem? It wasn't a date. Wait, what? Oh my gosh. Marilyn lived in her own reality. A lot of people heard a lot of things straight from the source. Straight from Maryland. People such as Danny Greenson, Jean Martin, Hilde and Joan Greenson, Arthur James, the people in the Unheard Tapes documentary. All the people we heard from last week. Henry Weinstein remembered it like this, quote, I get a call one day from her and she says, I have a very important date with a very important man. And I want to know from you what kinds of things I can say to him, what kinds of questions I may be able to ask him that will be impressive. So I said, Fine, but who's the man so I can think of topics for you? She said, It's Bobby Kennedy. I was a little floored. Seriously? I asked. Yes. She said, I have a date with Bobby Kennedy. So I said, Okay, well, we're right in the middle of the civil rights business, so ask him what he's doing to calm down the riots, how he feels about Martin Luther King, that sort of thing. Oh my gosh. Even the way she's saying it, she's like, Yes, I I have a date with Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, she's like reinforcing the fact that it is a date, and it is with Bobby Kennedy. This is how rumors begin. J. Randy Teraborelli points out that In subsequent years... Sources who have said Marilyn told them she was dating Bobby Kennedy weren't fibbing. Apparently, she was fibbing. In this case, it most certainly wasn't a date. It was a dinner party at Pat's, and she was just one of the guests. However, people heard from her that it was a date and then passed that information on to reporters many decades later. Each person has told the same story. She wrote down all of the questions she was given on a napkin so that she could remember them. And then Bobby called his dad and asked if he wanted to say hi to Marilyn Monroe. Here is Joan Braden's recounting of the evening. Quote, Bobby turned and I turned and there she was. Blonde, beautiful, red lips at the ready clad in a black lace dress which barely concealed the tips of her perfectly formed breasts and tightly fitted every curve of the body, unparalleled. Pat came over and said, Bobby, I'd like you to meet Marilyn. While Bobby was mildly interested in meeting the screen star, his wife, Ethel, was much more starstruck. (laughs) There's an intriguing story about Ethel's interest in Marilyn. She chose her to play herself in a movie. What? Ethel chose Marilyn to play Ethel? <laughs> yep. But they're nothing alike. Valid. But Ethel was convinced that Marilyn was actually a great actress. She told Joan Braden, I think she's underrated. I think she's done some very good work, and I'd be honored to have her play me in the movie. Aww. She thought Marilyn could do it easily. They're literally the opposites. <laughs> It's worse than Marilyn playing Playing Jackie. Jackie. (laughs) Yeah, like the irony in that. Okay, but they're still similar. So what was this movie about Ethel? Well, it never finished getting made, sadly, but they had started on a screenplay based on Bobby's book, The Enemy Within, about his investigation of Jimmy Hoffa and the Mm -hmm. Teamsters Union. Okay. I wonder if Ethel would have felt the same way if she would have known the rumors. With the way that she and Jean handled her sister, Pat Skakel, and Bobby, I highly doubt she would have extended that invitation any further. (laughs) Joan said that on the dinner party night, Bobby ended up sitting right next to her at dinner. They had an instant rapport. Not surprising in that they were both charismatic, smart people. Bobby enjoyed talking to intelligent, beautiful women and Marilyn certainly fit the bill. She was also inquisitive in a childlike way, which I think he found refreshing. I found her to be delightful, and everyone at the party was completely enthralled by her and rather dazzled by her presence. After dinner, Marilyn pulled out her napkin of notes and started asking Bobby all of her prepared questions. Fascinatingly, she already knew the FBI was bugging her. Can you believe that? I mean I feel like I keep saying can you believe that but but this, this whole is wild thing, the entire thing is wild Hoover she groaned spying on this one and that one he even spies on me and what do I ever do Gene Martin remembers the same conversation as Joan and how Marilyn exclaimed all I ever do is shop and make movies yet he has his goons following me Bobby told her that he and Jack felt the same way, but there was nothing they could really do about it at the moment. Then, according to Joan Braden, Afterwards, we all started dancing, and I remember Marilyn teaching Bobby how to do the twist. The two were laughing and having a very good time together. That, I think, was really pushing it, as far as Ethel was concerned. So Bobby and Marilyn were dancing together, but it's through a completely different lens than I imagined. I imagined this like romantic, they're all alone. They're doing this slow dance together and they're doing the twist in front of everyone at a dinner party. And Ethel is sitting right there. Yeah, because they literally are like, and their wives were in the other room. I can't believe it. Yeah. And it's like this friendly thing. They're literally dancing as friends. It irritated Ethel, but in like a, Bobby, why are you entertaining this? Kind of a way, not like uh, my husband is cheating on me. Right. I can't even look in that direction. I mean, I would have been pissed off. I would have stormed out to the car. But <laughs> it's quite different than an actual affair. Quote: I remember wondering how Bobby could be so flirtatious with another woman, knowing that Ethel was watching, and I was also worried about Ethel's feelings. People always thought Ethel Kennedy could take care of herself more so than the other Kennedy women, but I always thought that underneath Ethel's bravado was a very sensitive and very often hurt woman. Now, many of the reported stories of this evening end in Marilyn being so intoxicated that she couldn't drive and that Bobby was the one to take her home with his aide at Guthman. Guthman has even been quoted validating this claim. But here is Tara Borelli. Quote, Perhaps that happened on some other night. It's never been proven, though. But it definitely did not occur on this night. Fresh research now establishes that Marilyn did not drive to the Lawford home. She was picked up at 8 p.m. by Carrie Cadillac Renting Company of California from her apartment on Doheny Drive and then taken to the Lawfords. She stayed until 3 in the morning and then was driven back to her home. A receipt exists from the Carey Cadillac Renting Company, proving as much. And Edward Barnes, who now owns his own valet service, was a young parking attendant at the Lawfords that evening. He says that while Marilyn was waiting for her driver, there was a bit of chaos in front of the Lawford home. Quote, One of the other valets broke a cardinal rule and asked Miss Monroe if he could have a picture says Barnes, and that very second, a Secret Service agent appeared from nowhere and grabbed the guy's camera. It stunned everyone. Marilyn was surprised, too, and she said, wait a second, who the hell are you? And he said, secret service, ma'am. Just then, a Kennedy aide, who I later learned was Ed Guthman, said, we have agents here, Marilyn, it's okay. These secret service agents are popping out, scaring everyone. This they happened, must hide really well. Yes, this happened again in our Mary Lou mini set on Patreon. They were hiding in the curtains and then just popped out out of nowhere. And she was legitimately terrified. terrified. And that is also why so many of them are witnesses in next week's episode. Because it's hard to get anything past a secret service agent. And they were also the ones who swear that Jack could not have been a sex addict because they were with him 24-7. He couldn't have gotten anything past them. And the claims that Jack had to have sex with someone every single day just couldn't be true. The night of the Lawford dinner party, Marilyn told the Secret Service off in the front yard and won, thoroughly impressing everyone. The valet kid ended up getting a picture with Marilyn. But the whole story made the valet remember that Marilyn got into the car without Bobby Kennedy. The next day, Henry Weinstein, Marilyn's director, remembered asking her how her date with Bobby Kennedy went. Quote, And she said, It went great. And, Guess what? I have another date with him. So I thought, Wow, that's very nice. A few days went by and I didn't hear from her. I called her and said, So, how's it going with Bobby Kennedy? She said, well, let's put it this way. I don't need any more questions. Ooh. It sounds like the friend didn't think that was a valid story either. Like, right? That's she what was I think. Maybe lying to him about it being a date in the first place, and then didn't want any more questions about her lie story that she had told. Yeah. Or Marilyn thought that the first date went really well with Bobby, and then they talked again, and it didn't go well. Yeah, maybe Bobby like set her straight after the fact yeah like she thought it was a, she really did think it was a date and they had something going on and then when they talked afterwards she realized that he wasn't on the same page as her right another of Marilyn's friends had some doubts about the authenticity of her claims surrounding her conversations with bobby quote she wanted so much to be a part of his world Jean carmen recalled she thought bobby would be her passport to becoming a great lady I saw the stuff in Marilyn's diary, things about Jimmy Hoffa and Fidel Castro. It didn't mean anything to me because I was just a stupid young girl who could have cared less if they all killed each other. Marilyn had written a lot about Bobby in her diary. She wrote about him telling her top secret information, secret information about Fidel Castro, about nuclear bombs. Marilyn's close friend, Gene Martin, knew this but what seemed like bombshell information to some seemed unlikely to Jean. It seemed unlikely that Bobby would have confided in Marilyn about sensitive issues as much as her writings stated. Jean Martin knew Bobby too. Quote, She told me she made notes of things he told her, but you never know when your girlfriends are telling you the truth. I think she made those notes when he was talking on the telephone in hope of having something to talk to him about later. It probably never occurred to Bobby that she was listening to his conversations. And that's someone who is close to both of them and is really putting herself in what would have actually happened. Mm -hmm. What lines up with all of the other experiences that she's had with these two people. And then Bobby called his dad and asked if he wanted to say hi to Marilyn Monroe. And when you panned back... He wasn't a grubby little boy getting his hands dirty. Bobby was being a tourist in his sister's world. And Ethel was sitting right next to him. Marilyn was taking notes. (laughs) Quote, It should be noted that there have been many different accounts of Marilyn's first meeting with Bobby, going all the way back to dates in 1960. However, on the basis of information assembled for this book, February 1st, 1962, marked the first meeting. So that's that dinner date. Immediately afterward, on February 2nd, Marilyn wrote a letter to Isidore Miller, Arthur's father. So that is her ex-husband's dad. She began it, Dear Dad, and wrote of meeting Kennedy. He seems rather mature and brilliant for his 36 years. But what I liked best about him, besides his civil rights program, he has got such a wonderful sense of humor. She also wrote to Arthur's son, Bobby, to whom she was close. When they asked him who he wanted to meet, he wanted to meet me, she wrote. So I went to the dinner and sat next to him. And he isn't a bad dancer either. Based on Marilyn's words, he wanted to meet me, the two had not met before this evening. She further stated that Bobby had promised to send her a letter that would summarize their conversation. She promised to send Miller a copy of it. Quote, Because there will be some very interesting things in it, because I really asked many questions that I said the youth of America want answers to and want things done about. Tara Borelli maintains that though Jack and Marilyn met at that dinner party that occurred sometime in the 1950s, they never had a chance to talk in depth, nor get to know each other in any other way. They would get a chance to meet again in February, 1962. Peter invited Marilyn to yet another dinner party in New York to honor Jack. Well, to honor President John F. Kennedy. Quote, Dave Powers and I were supposed to escort Marilyn to the party. Dinner was at 8. We showed up at her place at 7.30. Of course, she was nowhere near ready. Her maid came out of her bedroom and said something about her not being able to make up her mind about what to wear. Also, she had this hairdresser, combing and teasing, combing and teasing. Finally, Dave said, I'm not going to sit here when I could be with the president. So he took the car back to the party and sent a limousine for us. The limousine arrived at 8.15, and she still wasn't ready. At that point, Peter called and said, what the hell is going on? Does she realize that she's keeping the president waiting? And when he said that to me, something clicked in my head and I thought, hmm, I wonder if that's the whole idea. This is Milton Evans, Peter's manager. The one we've heard from many times. At 8.30, still no Marilyn. At 8.45, Peter called frantically screaming to get her over to the party. At nine, the phone rang again. Milton was so frustrated and under pressure from Peter that he said, that's it, and burst into Marilyn's room to tell her to get herself in the car. When he opened the door, he found her sitting at her vanity, staring at herself in the mirror, darkening her beauty mark with an eyeliner pencil, completely naked. Do you realize you're keeping the president waiting? He asked her. Oh, calm down, Milt. My goodness. Then she proceeded to ask for help, getting into, quote, the tightest dress I have ever seen on a woman. We couldn't get it past her hips. Of course, typical Marilyn, she wasn't wearing any underwear either. So there I was, on my knees in front of her, my nose an inch from her crotch, pulling this dress down with all my might, trying to get it past her big ass. And she kept saying, Keep pulling, Mel. Keep pulling. You can do it. You can do it. Finally, they got the dress on. Marilyn put on a red wig and sunglasses at 9.30 p.m. and headed to the party. You'd think, but actually... She went right back over to the vanity and sat down in front of the mirror. Oh, my gosh. Milt said, finally, I grabbed her elbow and said, that's it. We're leaving. When they got there, the place was swarming with photographers waiting to see who the president's guests were. Not a single one recognized Marilyn. When she got upstairs, she removed her wig, shook out her hair, took a deep breath, and then exclaimed, Okay, shall we? When she walked in, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. There were about 25 people in there, and the crowd divided into halves as she walked through the room. The actress Arlene Dahl was there that night and remembers this. Marilyn walked in with her agent, and I'll never forget it. Everything stopped. Everyone stopped. It was magical, really. I've never seen anyone stop a room like that. Not even Jack could do that. Quote. The president turned around and noticed her, and you could see that he was immediately attracted to her. Finally, you're here, he said with a big smile and walked over to her. There are some people here who are dying to meet you. Then she was descended upon. People just wanted to stand near her smell her fragrance, breathe the same air as she. This is the night that Jack asked Marilyn for her number. And the very next day, he called with an invitation. Now that sounds about right. He explained that he was going to be in Palm Springs on March 24th. He would be staying with his friend, and as he understood it, hers as well. Frank Sinatra. Why not join him there? Oh, and incidentally, he told her, Jackie won't be there. And we all know what happens next. Peter picked her up that morning and took her to Bing Crosby's house. Marilyn talked to a friend, Diane Stevens, about the trip. I telephoned her on March 22nd to ask her a question about something's got to give, and said, So, what have you got planned for the weekend? Very casually, she said, Oh, I'm going to Palm Springs to spend the weekend with Frank Sinatra and Jack Kennedy. She hadn't been made aware of the change of plans yet. She was so casual about it. It was a little strange. I said, Wow, Marilyn, that's really something. And she said, Really? Is it? I said, well, yeah. And her reaction was, Well, you know, Robbie and I have had a couple of dates. Which was news to me. And I met Jack in New York recently. He's a nice guy, so I'm just going to see what happens. I hung up, thinking to myself, Wow. What a life. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion, some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country, but what did it look like behind closed doors, in their homes, the most intimate moments of their time on earth? Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, episode 19 from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The main sources for this episode were The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe by J. Randy Teraborelli and The Man Who Kept Marilyn's Secrets by James Spada. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download.